Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. All right. So it's very much a pleasure and an honor uh, for me to be invited back to the Dominican House of Studies for this event. I'm going to dive right in, and this is a, a lecture that I have typed up, because if I do this extemporaneously, I'm only going to talk about substance, and it's going to be 30 minutes in, and <laughs> I will only cover one of the 20 topics I plan to, to talk about quickly. Okay. All right, conversations require common vocabulary. And as the purpose of this event is to facilitate conversations between scientists and philosophers working in the Aristotelian and Thomistic traditions, it's helpful to begin by introducing some fundamental notions and terminology from Aristotelian and Thomistic philosophy. In particular, we're concerned with notions and terminology from what we usually now call Aristotle's and St. Thomas's philosophy of nature, to which they also refer as their physics or their science of nature. Father Ambrose, who's giving the next uh, talk, joked a couple nights ago that the purpose of my lecture is to cover in about 40 minutes the first two months of the philosophy of nature course that I used to teach um, and which he now teaches uh, here at the House of Studies. As this is indeed the purpose of my lecture, uh, I won't waste any more time with the introduction. So this lecture is a rather quick crash course. It's aimed primarily at those without much or any previous familiarity with Aristotelian philosophy. Uh, as Dr. Michael Gorman put it when he gave this introductory talk a couple of years ago, uh, you can think of what I'm presenting as the movie version, as it were, rather than the book version of some fundamentals of the Aristotelian philosophy of nature. Okay, so the, and so for those who, who have some familiarity with Aristotelian philosophy of nature, there may be some ways that I express things that seem like not the most nuanced way to put a point, but I'm, I'm trying to make things uh, as clear as possible on first pass. All right, so the terminology and notions that I'm going to introduce this morning include substance and accident along with Aristotle's categories of being, the different kinds of change, the four causes, form and matter, science, and demonstration. There is a handout. The handout is uh, very short. You can think of it as uh, sort of the, you know, the cheat sheet to keep with you if this terminology is new uh, to you. The Thomists are going to be using all of these terms uh, for, you know, the next three days. 
All right, with that, I'm gonna dive right in. So for each of these notions, what I'm going to do is explain the meaning of the key terms, provide a few examples, and in some cases, articulate the sorts of scientific or philosophical questions that can be asked using these notions. And in particular, in the end, I hope to be helpful in articulating the sorts of questions that are at issue in this year's symposium concerning uncertainty, confidence, and truth. All right. First, substance and accident. The distinction between substance and accident is central to Aristotelian metaphysics, the philosophical study of being. It plays an important role from the very beginning of Aristotle's general study of the natural world in his physics. In brief, in answer to the question, what is there, or what entities or beings are there in reality, if we take, as it were, a metaphysical census of the world and list all of the things that truly are beings or entities, Aristotle's answer is that the world is populated by independent, unified, whole, distinct beings or entities of various kinds, which he calls substances, and that these substances also have various features, which we call accidents, in addition to being what they are as substances. So we're gonna say a bit more about the notion of substance and then a little bit about the notion of accident. Examples of substances include things like this cat, that oak tree, this human being, that block of marble, that diamond. These are independent beings, beings not inherent in another. They are unified as one being rather than a collection of beings. They are wholes, which may have various parts, but are not themselves parts of some larger substance. They are each of some kind, as cats and oak trees, human beings, marble and diamond are different kinds of things. As the founder of biology and of biological taxonomy, the paradigmatic substances in which Aristotle is most interested are organisms, living things. Aristotle does also seem to think of the elemental or simplest bodies and of various homogeneous compounds resulting from the mixture of the elements as substances. So looking around the room that we're in now, Aristotle would identify each human being as a substance. He would identify the air that we breathe as a substance. He would not, however, identify the podium, the chairs, the air conditioners, and the light fixtures as substances. He would instead say in this case that these artifacts are arrangements of several substances, such as some kind of wood, some kind of metal, some kind of plastic, etc. For Aristotle, these artificial things are not of some kind in the relevant sense. That is, they're not kinds or species of substance. And they are not independent in the relevant sense, insofar as they depend for their being um, upon the substances of which they are composed. So the short way to put this thesis is, for Aristotle, generally speaking, artifacts are not substances. Here we can note, though, that a reductionist would likely object to the characterization of something like a cat as a substance. If something like an air conditioner or a car doesn't count as a substance, insofar as it has distinct substances as its parts, then why should a cat count as a substance? If a cat has the organs, tissues, and fluids of its body as parts, 
and each of these has cellular parts, and each of these cells has parts, which in turn have parts, which in turn have parts, until we arrive at things like atoms, subatomic particles, quarks, leptons, bosons, or wherever one supposes one has truly arrived at the building blocks of nature that truly are. This is the first point at which I would note that a notion in Aristotelian philosophy of nature just allows us to articulate a question about which there can be philosophical disagreement. Are living things, in fact, substances as we've just defined them? Or are the only things that are independent, unified, whole beings of a particular kind some more fundamental building blocks? So for an Aristotelian, a reductionist is just someone who identifies only elemental building blocks as substances and denies that any other substances come to be from the mixture or composition of the elements. For Aristotle himself, although substances can come to be from the composition of simpler material kinds, nevertheless, no substance has distinct substances as its parts. Now, if you've not encountered this claim before, it may be very surprising and rather counterintuitive. So for Aristotle, I, as an individual human being, am a substance, and although my liver and my right arm are parts of me, they are not distinct substances, nor are my cells, nor their cellular parts, nor their molecular parts, and so on. None of these for Aristotle would count as distinct substances, notwithstanding the fact that things like water and carbon can exist independently as substances. So this is a rather counterintuitive claim, and it's a claim we'll come back to a couple of times uh, a little bit later. All right, so much for now for the notion of substance. Accidents are the various features possessed by substances in addition to there being the kind of thing that they are as substances. Most of the things identified by Aristotle as accidents are changeable features of a substance. So, for example, that a cat is over here or over there that water is hot or cold, that a human being is honest or dishonest. Being over there, heat and honesty are all accidents, as something can be a cat without being over there. Something can be water without being hot. Something can be a human being without being honest. Unlike substances, which are independent, accidents are dependent in hearing in substances. At this point, we can mention, at least by name, Aristotle's ten categories. These are both the ten kinds of predicates, that is, things signified by the predicate term in a proposition of the form S is P. They are also, we will say, without um, addressing any arguments for or against this, that for Aristotle, they are the ten kinds or modes of being, or the ten ways or modes that things are. Aristotle puts forward ten categories, one of which is substance. There are thus nine kinds of accidental predicates or nine, nine accidental modes of being. So this is, uh, these are listed on the handout. The ten categories are substance, quantity, quality, relation, where, when, position, habit, action, and passion. Um, when I taught uh, philosophy of nature here, I would uh, tell students, uh, you know, all Aristotelians can rattle off the categories. You are Aristotelians, therefore. And uh, then I gave them a quiz the next day. Okay. Uh, 
So uh, Aristotle motivates these categories when he first introduces them by examples. Okay? So an example of a substance is a horse or a human being. An example of a quantity is being three feet long or being two gallons. An example of a quality would include things like being blue, being cold, being triangular, being honest. Quality is something of a catch-all category that contains a bunch of different things that don't fit in any of the other accidental categories. Uh, relation, examples are greater than or father, where in the priory or in theological college, when at noon or last year, position, being sitting or being standing, habit, being clothed, being armed, uh, be careful, a uh, habit in this sense is not the same, is not the sense in which we say that virtues are habits, right? Virtues as habits are a kind of quality. And then finally, action, uh, for example, heating and pushing, and passion, being heated, being pushed. All right, importantly, one can know that something is a being and yet not be certain to which of these categories it belongs including even sometimes whether it is a substance or an accident. Uh, so for Aristotle, it is a, a philosophical and scientific question concerning things that he says exist, to what category does such and such belong? Okay, that's a, a, a question that needs to be answered by uh, philosophical inquiry. Okay. Uh, now the classic example of a case in which you know that something is a being without knowing yet to what category it belongs. Uh, the classic medieval example of this is the rainbow. One can know that rainbows exist and yet not be sure of what they are, even whether they are substances or some accident of the air or of light. I mean, the first time you see a, a rainbow as a kid, right? You suppose it is, in fact, something like a bridge that you could, you know, you could climb onto. That would be, you know, thinking of it like a substance. All right, so we've spent a little bit of time on the notions of substance and accident, which are notions central to Aristotle's metaphysics. But as I've said, these notions are in the background of many of the important notions in Aristotle's natural philosophy to which we can now proceed. Uh, first, uh, Aristotle's natural philosophy is concerned with the material world. It's concerned with the world insofar as it is subject to change or motion. Uh, so it's the study of being insofar as it uh, is subject to motion. Uh, so let's, we can talk about a distinction between two kinds of change or motion corresponding to the distinction between substance and accident. So it's obvious on Aristotle's view that things change with respect to their accidents, that accidental change occurs. As a substance can change location or change in qualities like temperature or shape, or change in size. Such accidental features come to be and pass away, or rather substances come to be in some qualified accidental way and cease to be in some qualified accidental way. So if things like oak trees, cats, and human beings are substances, then it is also the case that substances themselves come to be and pass away as this human being did not exist 100 years ago and this human being will one day pass away. Aristotelians thus distinguish between accidental change and substantial change. Change in which an accident uh, comes to be or ceases to be within a substance as opposed to the coming to be or passing away of a substance itself. 
Now, many reductionists and the Empedoclean and atomist reductionists with whom Aristotle was familiar, reductionists will often deny the reality of substantial change. They deny that anything absolutely comes to be or passes away, instead holding that the things that are, the elements or the atoms or whatever the most fundamental building blocks are, merely undergo various changes, perhaps just changes of place, mixing into different arrangements to generate the things that we think of as substances. Now, as we'll discuss a little bit later, Aristotle's causal explanation of substantial change differs in some crucial respects from his explanation of accidental change. But to explain how this is so, we need to introduce Aristotle's four causes, including form and matter. All right, so the next major topic in this quick crash course are Arist is Aristotle's four causes. The four causes distinguished by Aristotle can best be thought of at a first pass as the four kinds of answers to the question why, or as four kinds of explanations for why something is the way that it is. Now, as the causes are all, in fact, for Aristotle, beings or real features or principles of beings, such a first-pass account is not quite accurate. St. Thomas offers as a definition of the notion of cause in his commentary on Aristotle's physics the following. A cause is that upon which something depends for its being or its coming to be. Okay? A cause is something upon which something depends for its being or coming to be. Following Aristotle's usage of these uh, three terms at the beginning of his physics, St. Thomas situates the meaning of cause in comparison to two other fundamentally important notions, namely the notions of principle and element. And this is actually commenting on the very first line of, uh, of Aristotle's physics in which these three notions are mentioned. All right, so first, an element is, quote, a first component of a thing and is in it. For example, words are made of syllables, and syllables are made of letters. Both syllables and letters are thus components of words, but letters are the elements, the first or simplest components, because the proximate components of words, namely syllables, are themselves made of letters. Now, the, the word for element in Greek is just the word for letter. So the elements in Greek are the letters of physical things. Okay. All right, as we just said, St. Thomas offers as a definition of cause that upon which something depends for its being or its coming to be. An element is thus an example of a cause. An element is a kind of cause, as a thing does depend upon the elements from which it is made for its coming to be. If there were no carbon, living things would not come to be. And carbon is somehow or another in living things, although exactly how this is so for Aristotle is, as I said a few moments ago, rather less straightforward than one might think. So all elements are causes, but not all causes are elements. As, for example, if I lift something, I am a cause of its coming to be in a certain place, but I am not a component of the thing that I'm lifting, let alone a first component found within it. So cause is a more general notion than element. 
Principle is an even more general notion than cause. The notion of a principle only, quote, implies some order of a process or progression. St. Thomas's example uh, is that a point is a principle of a line, although it is not a cause of a line. That is, the order of the parts of a line is relative to and explained or articulated in terms of points, but lines do not depend upon points as causes. And most importantly, the, the main you know, possible confusion to, uh, to avoid here is to, to note that lines are not made of points. Right? Points are not parts of lines, as one cannot make something extended out of unextended parts. So this is why points are merely principles of lines. They are not causes. They are not parts. All right, so this is to say that there may be things that serve as explanations, as what St. Thomas would call principles, uh, without being a cause. As, for example, a point is a principle used in explaining or articulating a line, but a point is not a cause of a line, as a point is not a thing upon which a line depends for its being or its coming to be. We think about lines in terms of points, but points don't cause lines. All right, so having situated the notion of cause relative to a more general notion principle and in comparison to a more specific notion element and having defined causes as those things upon which something depends for its being or its coming to be, we can list Aristotle's four causes. These are the efficient cause, the material cause, the formal cause, and the final cause. So some of the usual uh, formulaic ways of uh, you know, presenting what each of these causes uh, means, uh, we can offer the following. First, an efficient cause is the agent or the moving cause that makes something to be. Efficient causes are causes in the most familiar everyday sense, right? So um, if I push the paper, right, I'm the cause of the motion of the paper. That's an example of efficient causality. All right, a material cause is that out of which something comes to be. It is something which is in the thing that comes from it. So, for example, a statue is made out of marble. Okay. Um, perhaps in some sense, well, we'll talk about this later, uh, water is made of hydrogen and oxygen. Okay. Uh, so it's that out of which something comes to be, um, the stuff out of which something is made. The formal cause is a little bit uh, tricky to explain, uh, and the, the actual you know, formulas that Aristotle gives when he articulates what a formal cause is uh, require quite a bit of unpacking. Uh, so sometimes Aristotle will just say that a formal cause is the very essence of something or the definition, uh, the definition that signifies the essence of the thing, that signifies what the thing is in itself. As many Thomists put it, uh, Thomists will often say that a formal cause is the cause that makes a thing to be what it is. Okay, the cause that makes a thing to be what it is. Okay. Uh, we'll give an example of this uh, in just a moment. Uh, lastly, the final cause is that for the sake of which something is or comes to be. Okay, it is an end or perhaps in some cases a purpose. Okay, that for the sake of which something is or comes to be. All right, the classic first example used to introduce the four causes is a statue. Why is this thing a statue? 
or why or how has this statue come to be? Okay, the four causes give us four different sorts of answers to that why question. All right, with respect to efficient causality, we can say that the sculptor made the statue. The sculptor is the cause. The sculptor is something upon which the statue depends for its existence and for it, or rather for its having come to be. With respect to material causality, we can say that the statue depends upon the marble from which it was carved. The existence of the marble is a reason why the statue exists. And in fact, obviously, the marble remains in the statue. Um, if you took away the marble, you wouldn't have a statue anymore. So the marble is, as a material cause, a cause of the statue. As for the formal cause, in this case, what the form is is rather straightforward. In the case of a statue, the formal cause is its shape. What distinguishes a, a statue from un, you know, uncarved marble is just the, the shape that's given to the marble by the sculptor. So it is the shape that makes marble to be a statue. We can note that in this case, the matter, the marble, comes to possess the form, the shape, by the agency of the efficient cause. And this is generally how St. Thomas thinks about the relationship between efficient material and formal causes in physical things. Namely, efficient causes cause the information of matter. Efficient causes cause matter to receive or acquire a form. All right, lastly, with respect to the final cause, we can say the statue is made for the sake of something. For example, to honor the person depicted. Aristotle's first example in the physics of a final cause is that health is the final cause of walking, in the sense that if you ask someone, why are you going for a walk? For the sake of my health. Okay. In his biology, Aristotle identifies functions of the parts of living things as the final causes of those organs, as the heart is for the circulation of blood, and the neck is for the sake of eating and breathing, as it protects the esophagus in animals with lungs. Much confusion arises about the notion of final causality if one assumes that a final cause is a purpose in the sense of something intended by an agent possessing cognition or knowledge. So when Aristotle says that the heart is for the sake of the circulation of blood, of course he does not mean that the heart knowingly aims at circulating blood, he merely means that circulating blood is the biological function performed by the heart. This is how the notion of an organ is still defined in biology today. It's a collection of tissues that perform a particular function. From the Aristotelian point of view, that is a definition through final causality. In any case in which a substance or part of a substance always tends to perform some activity, that activity is that for the sake of which in relation to that substance or substantial part. Now, for Aristotle and St. Thomas, the final cause is in a way the most important of the causes as we have a final cause whenever we have some effect that tends to result from some agent. This means that efficient causality is always ordered by or even defined with respect to final causality. As we've seen in physical things, what agents or efficient causes do is to bring it about that matter receives some form. So material and formal causes depend upon efficient causes, and efficient causes depend upon final causes. For this reason, St. Thomas says that the final cause is the cause of causes.
All right. So much uh, for the four causes in general. We don't need to say much more about final causality or about efficient causality in this introductory lecture, but we do need to give just a little bit more attention to the notions of form and matter and to what contemporary philosophers now call hylomorphism, the view held by Aristotle that physical substances are composed of matter and form. This theme is maybe a little bit less uh, crucial for this year's particular symposium given its uh, topic, but no introduction to Aristotelian natural philosophy would be complete without some mention of hylomorphism. All right, so very quickly, matter is again, as it were, the stuff out of which something is made and matter is somehow in that which has been made from it. When something is made from matter, this is so because matter has received some new form. We can give examples of both accidental changes and substantial changes. So when water goes from being cold to being hot, the water is the matter in relation to hot water, and heat is the form that the water comes to possess. When a human being becomes knowledgeable, the human being is the matter in relation to the knowledgeable human, and knowledge is the form that the human being comes to possess. In these cases, it is the accident itself, the accidental feature, that is the form acquired by a substance that didn't previously possess it. Things are a little bit more complicated, however, in the case of substantial change. Given Aristotle's commitment to certain claims concerning substance, as we have said, a substance is an independent, unified whole entity of a particular kind. And no substance has actual substances distinct from itself as parts. So if a substance comes to be, it cannot be the case that any of the previously existing substances from which it was generated actually persist in it as distinct parts. So assuming for the sake of example, that the generation of water from hydrogen and oxygen is an instance of substantial change, which is what we must say if we say that water is a substance, as most contemporary Aristotelians and Thomists would say. Well, if we say all of that, then we have to say that hydrogen and oxygen, oxygen do not exist actually as parts of water. But then hydrogen and oxygen cannot themselves be the matter of water in the way that water is analogously the matter of heated water. Hydrogen and oxygen aren't what receive the form of being water. So what does receive this form? It's at this point that Aristotle and St. Thomas introduced the notion of prime matter as the ultimate underlying subject of physical change. St. Thomas characterizes prime matter as pure potentiality for substantial forms. Prime matter never exists independently on its own. It is always informed by some substantial form or another. When one or more substances pass away and one or more substances come to be in their place, this underlying fundamental potentiality is the subject of the various forms. All right, that was prime matter in 30 seconds, okay? All right, what is hylomorphism then? Hylomorphism is the theory that all physical substances are composed of form and matter. 
uh, and to be a little more precise, that all, all uh, physical substances are composed of substantial form and prime matter. Now, St. Thomas's version of hylomorphism is explicit in the claim that in a given substance, that in a given substance, there is one and only one substantial form. This is the thesis of the unicity of substantial form. Uh, probably the most controversial thesis um, that Thomas advanced in his own lifetime. Uh, it, it's surprising to us now, but this was the thing that he was most criticized for in his own lifetime and shortly after the thesis that there's only one substantial form in a thing. Okay. Uh, so for Aristotle and St. Thomas, souls are substantial forms. They are the substantial forms that make a living thing to be this or that kind of organism. So in the case of the human being, St. Thomas, because he's committed to the unicity of substantial form, is going to explicitly hold that a human soul is the single substantial form of a given human being. All right. Much more could be said about hylomorphism, but that's going to have to suffice for now. All right, the last major topic I want to talk about um, is with a view to the particular theme of this year's symposium, namely uncertainty, confidence, and truth in the sciences. We should say a little bit about how Aristotle himself thinks about the notions of science and demonstration. At a first pass, we can say that for Aristotle, as for us, a science is an organized body of knowledge concerning some distinct subject matter. Biology is about living things, geometry is about shapes, optics is about light, and so on. Sciences can be more general or more specific according to the subject matter that they treat, as zoology is a part of biology and as the study of conic sections is a part of geometry. Aristotle advances, though, a somewhat stricter notion of what science is in the proper sense. On his view, the aim of scientific inquiry is science understood in a rather narrow way. So we can say that for Aristotle, science in the strict or narrow sense is reasoned and certain knowledge about the necessary. First, science is a kind of knowledge that is the result of a reasoning process. There will be some truths on Aristotle's account that are necessary and known with certainty, but which are known immediately, not as the result of a reasoning process. Such immediately known truths will be among the starting points of scientific reasoning. So for example, the principle that the whole is greater than its part is something known immediately without the need for proof or demonstration by reason. Second, and of course this is the most important uh, claim for uh, our conversation in this symposium, for Aristotle, scientific knowledge is knowledge that is certain. If knowledge is scientific in the strict sense, then room for doubt has been removed. I may know a necessary truth, such as that the interior angles of a triangle sum to two right angles, without having any certainty about it. Indeed, the only way to know this particular truth with certainty is to know it as a result of the appropriate kind of reasoning process, namely a geometric proof. In general, these first two features of science are closely related. The way for Aristotle to achieve certainty about the necessary is through a reasoning process like that involved in geometry. All right, third, science is about the necessary 
It is about that which cannot be otherwise. If something can be or could have been otherwise than it is, then it is contingent, not necessary. There cannot be science about contingent facts, even if we have a kind of certainty about something contingent. So, for example, it's a contingent fact that my wife's hair is red. Despite the fact that I know with certainty that her hair is red, this knowledge is not an instance of science. This is also why for Aristotelians, studies like literature and history are not sciences. They're not sciences just because they are concerned with the contingent. Okay, so for Aristotle, science is knowledge about what is necessary that is certain because of the reasoning process through which one knows. The name of the reasoning process that results in science is called by Aristotle demonstration. What distinguishes a demonstration from other arguments is not its form or its logical structure, but rather its content. In particular, something about the premises involved and the relationship between the premises and the conclusion. The premises of a demonstrative argument possess certain characteristics, which Aristotle lists and explains at some length in his posterior analytics. According to Aristotle, the premises of a demonstrative syllogism must be true, primary, that is, not a conclusion from other premises, immediate, that is, self-evident, known just through themselves, better known than the conclusion, prior to the conclusion, and related to the conclusion as cause to effect. Okay, now, we, we don't have time to discuss what each of those, uh, each of those means. Uh, and for the sake of time, I'm only going to focus on the last of these relationships, that scientific reasoning for Aristotle, demonstrative reasoning, involves reasoning between cause and effect. So science, or scientific knowledge in the strict sense for Aristotle, is the fruit, the result, of a demonstrative argument whose premises meet the criteria that he lays out. We'll focus our attention on the last criterion, that demonstrative reasoning involves reasoning from causes to effects. Central to the notion of science is that it is not just knowledge that something is the case, but knowledge both that it is so and why it is so. Uh, so one way that... Uh, uh, often people will translate uh, uh, the term used to talk about demonstration in the strict sense is to say that it gives us knowledge of the reasoned fact, not just knowing that something is the case, but understanding why it is the case. So for Aristotle, a proper demonstrative argument moves from the cause and arrives at the effect as a conclusion. Aristotle puts it this way uh, in the first book of the Posterior Analytics. Quote, we suppose ourselves to possess unqualified scientific knowledge of a thing, as opposed to knowing it in the accidental way in which the sophist knows, when we think that we know the cause on which the fact depends, as the cause of that fact and of no other, and further that the fact could not be other than it is. So in a scientific demonstration, one knows a conclusion in light of a cause-effect relation. For scientific knowledge in the most perfect strictest sense, one reasons from a proper cause to a proper effect. But because the cause-effect relation is such that one's reasoning might start with what is in effect rather than with what is the cause, Aristotle and St. Thomas draw a distinction between two kinds of demonstration, 
And you can think of these as demonstration in the strict and perfect sense as opposed to demonstration in a weaker sense. A proper demonstration fits the criterion of moving from cause to effect, allowing one to know both that something is the case and to know why it is the case. This is called a demonstration propter quid by St. Thomas. Science in the very strictest sense is the result of demonstration propter quid. So here's an example of, uh, given by Aristotle in the Posterior Analytics of a scientific demonstration, something that uh, he, he takes from his biology. Very basic example. All mammals nurse, whales are mammals, therefore whales nurse. Okay. Now, this might not seem like an earth-shattering you know, demonstration, but it is an answer to the question, why do whales nurse their young? Well, because of the kind of thing that they are. That is, because of their form. They belong to a kind to which it belongs to nurse. So this is a very simple example for Aristotle of a demonstration through a formal cause. All right, there's another weaker kind of demonstration in which one only demonstrates that something is the case without demonstrating why it is so. Instead of demonstrating from the cause to the effect, one instead demonstrates from the effect to the cause. This is known as a demonstration quia. Such demonstrations are the best we can do in cases where the effect is better known to us than the cause. For example, when the cause is something immaterial. So uh, Thomas does uh, think that we can have demonstrations concerning the existence and the attributes of God in his metaphysics, but they can only ever be demonstrations quia. They can't be demonstrations propter quid. We're only ever reasoning from effects to God as cause. Uh, we never have properly scientific knowledge concerning God himself, okay. at least by uh, philosophical reasoning. All right, as St. Thomas explains in one of his commentaries on Aristotle, both the natural and the moral sciences sometimes can only offer demonstrations quia. So Aristotle puts forth this very high standard for what constitutes science in the strictest sense, what constitutes perfect scientific demonstration in the strictest sense, and then you have the recognition that uh, the striving after that ideal often falls short, and the best that you can do is a demonstration that something is the case. Or in other cases, the best that you can do is just you know, probable knowledge or confident opinion that something is the case, where you recognize you don't actually know a cause-effect relationship well enough <laughs> to say that you know the conclusion with certainty. All right, uh, this is the stock example, the first example of a demonstration quia that Aristotle gives. Uh, it's a kind of silly example because it is not, in fact, he thinks, a good example of, a, uh, uh, of an argument in astronomy. Uh, but he does put this, this argument forward for reasons that will become clear in a second. Okay, here's an argument he puts forward. This is an example of a demonstration quia. Whatever does not twinkle is near. The planets do not twinkle, therefore the planets are near. Okay? The idea is that if, there, if being near or far had anything to do with why planets or stars do or do not twinkle, if you were to reason from the fact that something doesn't twinkle to the fact that it's near, that would have to be reasoning from effect to cause. Right? It would be absurd to think that non-twinkling was the cause of proximity, right? If anything's a cause there, it's proximity or distance. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. 
Okay. So this is given as an example by Aristotle because not because it's actually a good scientific argument, but just because it's a case where it's very clear what the cause would be okay, if this is a cause-effect relationship. Okay. And it's also given as an example where it might be possible to rearrange the argument and transform it into a demonstration propter quid. So we can take the content, as it were, of the, the same syllogism, rearrange it as follows, and this is in the form of a demonstrative syllogism. Whatever is near does not twinkle. The planets are near, therefore the planets do not twinkle. Now this is, again, this is not actually an example of a demonstration for Aristotle because there isn't actually a cause-effect relationship between these two things on his view. Okay, but it's an example of how one could in principle move from first knowing something by a quia demonstration then eventually arrive at knowing it by a propter quid demonstration. So these examples are given by Aristotle purely for the sake of example to illustrate the difference between effect-to-cause reasoning and cause-to-effect reasoning. Aristotle, again, does not in fact think that distance from the earth is the cause of twinkling, um, nor, yeah, uh, he doesn't think the one thing in fact has anything to do with the other. The point of the example, again, is that if distance or proximity had anything to do with twinkling or not twinkling, then distance or proximity would obviously be the cause. All right, so that's a bad example, even by Aristotle's own light. Uh, where in Aristotle's philosophical works do we actually find examples of real demonstrations? Many of the examples in the posterior analytics are taken from geometry. And geometric knowledge is certainly scientific knowledge in the Aristotelian sense for Aristotle. There are also demonstrations and purported demonstrations put forward in Aristotle's works on general physics, astronomy, meteorology, uh, and so on. So for example, uh, in his physics, Aristotle offers a demonstration that time is a property of beings insofar as they are subject to motion or change. And he also attempts to demonstrate that motion is eternal, such that the universe has always existed and has always been in motion. Uh, St. Thomas rejects the latter attempted demonstration by some rather convincing criticisms. Now, there seems to be growing recognition among scholars of Aristotle that perhaps the very best place to see Aristotle himself pursue the progression from observation to generalization to quia reasoning to demonstrative uh, propter quid reasoning and thus arriving at scientific knowledge in the strict sense, perhaps the best way to look at all of this in action in Aristotle's thinking is in his biological works which make up a quarter, about a quarter of his extant works. Here I would mention in particular and recommend to you the work of James Lennox. Um, and as a starting point, I would uh, recommend his entry, his entry, you can search for this, on Aristotle's biology in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. All right, we come now to the end. With a view to the theme of our symposium and with a view to handing off the baton to Father Ambrose, I'm going to close by noting that although certain knowledge through propter quid demonstration is the ultimate goal, the final cause of scientific inquiry, and to understand why things are the way they are through the four causes, even though that's the goal, nevertheless, there is also much in Aristotle's physical and biological works where he settles for asserting what he thinks is likely the case as the best explanation, rather than purporting to demonstrate. For many interpreters of Aristotle in the later tradition, for example, 
Aristotle's famous theory of the four elements is regarded as something held only as a matter of likely opinion rather than as a matter of scientific demonstration. That is, you can't actually find anything that looks like a demonstration in the work in which Aristotle puts forward the theory of the elements. There may seem to be a wide chasm between an Aristotelian confidence that scientific knowledge as such involves certainty achieved through reasoning about causes and effects, and on the other hand, some very common contemporary views about confidence and uncertainty in the sciences, but then this is why we have gathered together for the symposium, and I hope this introduction will have helped to at least get the conversation started. Thank you. So, um, to start a little late, we have some time for questions. Um, so, uh, yeah, right here. So, um, for Aristotle, species are eternal. So, knowledge about them is necessary. So, when, 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 I mean, we've talked about this in the rest yeah. of the but what respect we have necessary knowledge about the importance of these contingent things. Yeah, yeah, good. Like whales. Yeah, good. So, um, the claim that for Aristotle, species are eternal. I mean, sort of, maybe the best way to respond is within the structure of his philosophical thinking, the view that species are eternal is downstream in his reasoning from the claim that the universe is eternal and that motion has been going on forever and that the universe actually, he thinks, consists in the earth surrounded by a series of, you know, of like eternally moving spheres. Um, so that the only, the only place where there are you know, living things of various kinds is, you know, here on the surface of the earth. Um, and he puts forward an argument at the beginning of On the Generation of Animals when he's, cons so it, it, it's actually not quite right that all species are eternal for Aristotle in this sense. Um, Aristotle distinguishes between things that um, arise by reproduction and of course, you know, he holds to a theory of spontaneous generation for other living things. Um, and he's very clear that um, spontaneously generated things may be new, like of a new kind, and that there's a, like a potentially infinite number of possible spontaneously generated things. So there is room in Aristotle for um, species that are not eternal. He also, in the biological works, talks about you know certain um, changes that apparently species have undergone. So, for example, moles, he's a, you know, he, he, he recognizes sort of this vestigial character of eyes, right? So th things are, in Aristotle's biological works, things are a little bit, I think, more complicated and nuanced than the, you know, than, than the claim that for Aristotle all, all species are eternal. And again, insofar as it is true that Aristotle does think that many species are eternal in the sense that they've been around forever and they're going to be around, right, in the future, um, it's, it's, again, downstream of what St. Thomas thinks is actually a faulty, like, terrible attempt. At, it, it, it's a really funny moment in the physics, because, I mean, it's like, you know, Thomas's reverence for Aristotle, and then you get to the purported demonstration that motion has been going on forever, and Thomas accuses Aristotle of very fundament, fundamental mistakes um, in, in his reasoning. I don't know if, does that no, no, help no, us with first answer? Yeah. About the, how can we have certain knowledge about these non okay. things? Yeah, yeah. So, um, we can... Uh, maybe give a more satisfactory answer within the Thomistic framework than we obviously can within what's evident in the, in the, in the Aristotelian framework. So in the Aristotelian framework, 
the first ultimate cause of all things, right, the divine, it's not obvious that Aristotle holds to the view that the first cause of all things uh, knows <laughs> about the things that it causes to move um, or has any concern for the generation of things. Uh, whereas in a Thomistic framework, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, uh, a very explicit claim, right, that the first cause of all things knows the things that it causes and intends to cause the things uh, that it causes. So um, to the, if one makes a connection between the necessary and the eternal, then where are you going to find the eternity of species? It's going to be in the divine ideas, okay? However, I would note that there's an important shift that occurs in the, in the sort of history of the Aristotelian tradition. For Aristotle, the necessary is the eternal, and that's just a nice, neat, <laughs> the best way to explain the necessary is as the eternal. Where later in the Aristotelian tradition, the notion of necessity, um, especially through the influence of Arabic philosophy, becomes a little bit detached from the notion of eternity. And I don't think that, I mean, Thomas's notion of the necessary as that which cannot be otherwise, you, you draw a distinction between things absolutely necessary in themselves as opposed to things that are necessary but nevertheless have a cause of their necessity. So Thomas will say that an angel possesses necessary existence, but it nevertheless its existence is caused. So once an angel exists, it can't not exist. But nevertheless, it was caused to exist, and it has only existed for a finite time. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you for that very good talk. In your definition of substantial change, you make the qualification that the change is without qualification. <laughs> Why and what would be an example of such a qualification that would yeah. Yeah, and this is a case where I did uh, insert a little bit of the, the language that Aristotle himself uh, uses when he introduces these. Um, uh, Aristotle doesn't act, himself doesn't use the expression substantial change, uh, accidental change. He just talks about coming to be absolutely or coming to be without qualification as opposed to coming to be in a qualified way. Coming to be in a qualified way just is accidental change. So... If, a, uh, if water goes from being cold to being hot, right? It's not that water has come to be unqualifiedly. It's that water has come to be in, with a new qualification, as it were, in a, in a particular qualified way. So that, that if the expression accidental change and the notion of change with respect to an accident is clearer, that's all that we mean by change in a qualified way. Does that, does that help? So they fundamental refrain from <laughs> offering a definite view. So, um, uh, no, I would, I would want to talk more about the, yeah, the particular case in question and whether this is something happening, you know, within a part of, you know, uh, some larger thing or something that's happening, right, independent of any larger thing. And um, I will say that a lot of things that, um, this is very hand-wavy, but, uh, you know, 
the notions of substance and accident as they get applied to right contemporary you know uh, physical notions. Uh, Aristotelians and Thomists are actually kind of all over the place in terms of what things count as substances and what things are really you know what things you know maybe are really accidents. And just because we think of something in terms of you know a particle doesn't mean that we should jump to saying it's it's a substance and that it's coming to be or passing away as a you know is a is a substantial change. But that's a whole. But that's where that's way down in the weeds, and I'm actually not the one best suited to go down there. So. Okay. Yeah. So it, first, I, would, I, you know, I, I think it's absolutely right. I mean, I remember, you know, in, in uh, you know, high school and in college, right? I mean, so many textbooks, right, begin with, here's something of the Aristotelian worldview, and here's, you know, how we, you know, improved upon, you know, the the the, the horrible mistakes of that worldview. Um, so yeah, it is the case. Aristotle uh, conceives of the cosmos as uh, geocentric. Right, series of you know concentric spheres, right spheres rotating eternally around a fixed Earth. That's that's Aristotle's view. That's the common view for like the best astronomy you know uh, of the day, and for for a long time that was the best astronomical model that we had. Um, um, yeah, there's a lot more that could be said on that. What what I'll say is when Aristotle actually purports to prove that there are eternal circular motions. It's also something that's downstream of his proof that the universe is eternal. And so Thomas rejects Aristotle's argumentation for the eternity of the world. And that actually leaves you with no philosophical demonstration of the, the you know, and it's complicated. I mean, it's not to say that I, I think that there are problems with the other later demonstrations in Aristotle's physics too because um, – that's a whole, but but I would I would offer a similar answer that um, the things that are be maybe put it this way the things that I, you know Aristotelians and Thomists want to defend from Aristotelian philosophy of nature are some of the more general right you know principles and the starting points some of the general conclusions reached about the physical world um, uh, with a recognition that the more you descend to details in parts of Aristotle's science the more you know, the more there are things that he got very wrong. And, and in this case, it's all of his arguments for the, you know, eternal rotation of the spheres follow upon a prior demonstration that, you know, the universe is eternally in motion. And that's a bad, faulty... And, and it's the Aristotelian tradition itself, long before the scientific revolution, right, that judged that those were bad arguments, right, and, and rejected them. Um, does, that, does that help all right, um, why don't we stop there? I know there are probably some few more questions, but just we're uh, a little bit behind, partially my fault. Uh, but um, so it's uh, 1040, so we'll, let's take a, we'll start again uh, in 12 minutes um, at uh, 1050.
Um, so there are refreshments. Uh, oh, so first, let's thank Dr. Carl one more time for your talk. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.